This is Space 101.1, LPFM, KMGP Magnuson Park, Seattle. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to Cascade of History, the only live radio show all about Pacific Northwest history. We're here every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time on Space 101.1, a very mighty, uh, small but mighty radio station here located in North Seattle. We're in the old Master at Arms quarters around the old gatehouse structure of historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, which became Magnuson Park, oh, I don't know, a couple, many decades ago now, almost 50 years ago, I think now. Um, we have uh, wonderful shows. We always do. We're kind of hop around the Pacific Northwest talking to people who are involved in different interesting projects doing interesting things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, our f- uh, a little bit later on, we're going to talk to Clay Eels. Uh, he's half of the team that brings you that weekly Now and Then column in the Seattle Times. If you haven't seen Pacific Magazine yet this week and you subscribe to the hard copy of the Seattle Times, which why wouldn't you, of course, um, go and get that now and um, take a look at that little that story. It's usually it's right in the... Uh, not quite the back page, but the back pages of the Now and Then magazine. And they did a clay and works on that with Gene Sherrard. They're kind of a team, but they uh, one of them usually takes the lead on that particular column. And they did just a really wonderful column this week about some photographs taken up at Mount Rainier back in the 1920s. And a mother and child connected over the decades and just have a very interesting um, kind of bittersweet footnote to that story that Clay's going to share with us a little bit later on. Um, and then we'll talk to Nick uh, Nel- Negalescu. He's the digital editor of a project called the Cascade District. I've seen them on Facebook. I've looked at their website. Look at it now if you want, the, the Cascade District. Um, really interesting place name and other geographical and historical information on a website here in the Northwest. And we'll talk to Nick Negulescu a little bit later in the program. Um, we'll probably, you know, I, was, I think I only played the tease last week of our third installment of Their Name Was Courage. This is this program produced by uh, the Seattle Junior League for the Centennial back in 1951. Um, I think this was the tease I played. Let's see here one more time. This is how episode two ended uh, many weeks ago now. And he led them in war when the northern enemies attacked. But he always carried peace in his heart. And always the dream was with him. And then I think I never actually got to playing the episode last week. And correct me if I'm wrong. You can you can go to our Facebook page, the Cascade of History Facebook page, or send an email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. I didn't have time to go back and listen to last week's episode, and I don't think I ever played the full couple minutes from that uh, series produced by Gloria Chandler. So I hope we will get to that this week. Um, and we've been collecting information from people about their favorite, we were calling it, I think, uh, overdue books, I think is what we've called it, where people tell me their favorite history book. I've got a bunch of different suggestions. Um, I posted a picture of Puget Sounds, which is that terrific history of broadcasting in the Northwest, written by Dave Richardson back in the 1970s. And so, uh, lots of people had chimed in, and I'm going to sort of drill down on that, and maybe I'll invite individuals who posted about particular books and have them come on a future episode and spend just a few minutes with us here telling us why a book is interesting to them and why it's worth uh, reading. 
Um, this show, you know, we're on live at 8 o'clock, live at 9 o'clock. How many radio stations have live shows on Sunday nights? Not very many. Um, Jay's Radio Hour will be on at 9 p.m. Pacific time on Space 101.1 FM and streaming everywhere at space101fm.org. Uh, tonight, Jay has choice selections from a massive hall that came from John Tefteller, one of the world's foremost collectors of world music, jazz, and blues. If you haven't heard Jay's Radio Hour before, if you only ever heard our show and haven't stuck around, I encourage you to listen to it. It's pretty cool. Jay travels around uh, all over the place. Like last week, they played a bunch of records that they'd collected up in OMAC, up in uh, north central eastern Washington, north central eastern Washington. This time, I think they went down to Grants Pass, Oregon, um, actually a place called Cave Junction, and brought back 2,000 pounds of vintage 78s and stuff, and Jay's been curating them and sorting out the best ones. So he'll have that starting here live at 9 on uh, Space 101.1 FM. Now, um, but my first guest I'm going to bring on here in a moment is Tim McNulty. He's the author of a new book about the Olympic Peninsula called Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain. Let me press all the buttons I have to press. That makes Mad Tim magically appear on the air here with us. Stand by. I press that one. I press that one. I press that one. Tim, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Felix. Oh, it's always a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm amazed. Yeah, I do. I've, I've said oftentimes I do this once a week, and and I've said many times before I could never be accused of being slick. And there's I literally, I think I have to press five buttons to get you from just being on hold to being able to talk to you, and you, we hear each other. And I only have you know two hands. So anyway, enough of the behind the scenes thing. Um, thanks for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. I got a chance to look at this book that you've produced with the Mountaineers. And I want to talk about that. But also, before we get too far, I want to mention, you guys are doing a big event tomorrow night, Monday night at Town Hall in Seattle, right? That's right, yeah. And that's, there's still, uh, still tickets available? And what will people see if they come to that event tomorrow night? Well, that'll be kind of a, it's the, a, a, sort of the official launch of, of the book. Uh, it's a collaborative project with uh, several writers. And uh, some of us will be there tomorrow night. I'll be there. Uh, David Gooderson, who wrote the introduction. Um, Wendy Sampson, a uh, uh, Lower Elwha Clallam writer who contributed a beautiful essay, and uh, Linda Mapes, I think. Oh, uh, terrific writer. Linda's great. She's done so much great stuff with the Seattle Times. Her, her, she's got a great feel for history and culture and science and bringing it all together. So it, it's a. how did you assemble this incredible team for this book? Well, I have to give credit to that, to uh, the Braided River, uh, the conservation imprint of Mountaineers Books, who were really committed to this project from the start. And they really wanted it to be an inclusive project to bring in um, not just a, a couple of writers, but a good representation of Native American writers from the peninsula as well. And many photographers, um, they uh, did all the magic over there and kind of uh, brought it all together, did the photo selection, did the editing. And <laughs> I had I had not much to do with that, but... Uh, uh, it, I'm, I'm really pleased and honored to be to be part of this project. Yeah, the indigenous writers are. I, that's probably the answer. I was going to ask you not not like a flippant question, but you know, I have I have Murray Morgan's book about the Olympic Peninsula. I have some of the Ruby L. Holt sort of 1950s uh, oh, sure, books. Yeah. yeah, which are they're sort of you know they're 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 of their time, but they're certainly they don't they don't necessarily age super well for you know the kind of uh, inclusivity that we're talking about. But I just, a couple days ago, less than a week ago, I came across that book. I think his name's Carlton Lean or Lean. Oh, Carson Lean. Yeah. Carson Lean. Yeah. That with all those, like all the uh, primary materials from the different um, expeditions and like the, the press expedition and these different groups who looked at uh, in, in sort of um, 
explored the Atlantic yeah. Peninsula back in the 19th century. What an amazing resource that is. Not like not all, like a huge amount original of original text. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, yeah, it yeah not like a narrative you'd sit down and read from cover to cover, but some really cool for stuff. So, I, I think I know the answer to this, but do we need another book about the Atlantic Peninsula? Well, I think always, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, times change, stories change. Um, uh, the Elwha restoration is a huge story, uh, something that uh, I think many of us over here, many of us across the country are pretty excited about. Yeah. Um, there's the growing threat of uh, human-caused climate change, which is uh, affecting the peninsula in, in some significant ways, and I, I explored some of that in my essay as well, as well as... Uh, a lot of really important restoration projects that are happening uh, across the Olympic Peninsula to uh, bring back habitat for salmon, uh, wildlife, to try to stabilize rivers, and to try to get um, get this uh, whole remarkable ecosystem uh, in shape where it can cope with uh, what's coming in terms of climate change. There's, there's something that's special about the Olympic Peninsula, even if I think about the times I've been in more remote parts of northeastern Washington or north-central Washington. The Olympic Peninsula, maybe it's because of the Pacific Ocean. Maybe maybe it's not. Maybe this isn't a very brilliant observation. But there's times in that stretch over on the west part of the peninsula on the highway between, I don't know, get like around like uh, Claylock or places like that, where I feel mm-hmm. more remote from, I don't know, it just it feels very, it feels very much like its own sort of separate, very distinct separate place. Is that, I mean, do you get know what I'm trying to say? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and yeah, I agree with you entirely on that. It is, uh, the peninsula is its own territory. It's uh, kind of separate from the mainland. Yeah. And, you know, uh, geologically, uh, climatically, during the Ice Age, when the big glaciers were here, it really was separated from uh, uh, the rest of North America for, for quite some time. And that's reflected now in, oh, more than two dozen endemic species, plants and animals that don't occur anywhere else in the world but that are here. And in terms of the, the period of non-native settlement, where you have the, you know, the Europeans coming, I know we have Spanish up at the tip of Nia Bay, that area in the, I don't know, the mm-hmm. 1780s, I think, or maybe early 1790s. Um, when does like, the settlement on the land start to really help happen in earnest on the Olympic Peninsula? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one, one of the things that really stunned me in my research was... Uh, when the uh, uh, U.S. and Canada border was established, it was in the uh, 1840s, 1846, I think. Yeah, the Treaty of 1846, yeah. Yeah, at that time, there were no European settlers on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, and that's, wow. pretty la- that's pretty late in American history. It's pretty late in American homesteading. History. Yeah. Um, and yet here uh, it was uh, still, uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, a colonial conquest had not yet occurred. Uh, and so history came pretty late to this place. That's something that one of Robert books, Robert uh, uh, Wood's books, um, The Land That Slept Late. Yeah, occurred. that's right. That's another. Yeah, they, yeah, that's exactly. Now, so it seems like with the, the conservation efforts recently that we've seen about the Elwha Dam. Um, oh, before I say that, I noticed you were able to get in the sad fact that the Hurricane Ridge Lodge had, or Visitor Center had burned down. That was, you, got the, you managed to get that into the book. It must have been right as the deadline was coming. That was, yeah, that was uh, uh, re- rewriting a, a caption at the last moment. Man. Um, yeah, that is, that is a, a, a sad event, and, and uh, I'm afraid it's going to be a while before we can see another Visitor Center up yeah. there. So is it, I mean, based on what we were talking about a moment ago, about it being its own distinct place, kind of with, a, with, with sort of very clear boundaries and its separate identity in a lot of ways, 
are the conservation efforts that have been happening recently combined with that sort of sense of isolation, does it mean that sort of a, could be kind of a microcosm or that sort of these experiments are sort of able to happen there that might not be politically possible or culturally possible in other parts of the state or the country in terms of the kind of things that are happening now? Well, that, you know, uh, we hope that the, the, the great things that happen here, like the Elwha, the Elwha River restoration, uh, can serve as a model for other parts of the country. But you're pointing to something that's, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting, and that is though the Olympic Peninsula has always been somewhat separate from the country, from the rest of the mainland, as, as we think of it, uh, at the same time, it has been uh, the focus of national and um, one could say with, with the... Uh, UNESCO, a Biosphere Reserve World Heritage Site designation, world attention kind of focused on the place. So that doesn't hurt when uh, something like a, you know, a $300 plus million project of dam removal um, uh, comes up before Congress, to have uh, people all around the country who really care deeply about this place, who have visited here or perhaps not visited here, but have been moved by what they've read and seen at the place. And, I mean, this, this book's described, it's called Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain. We're talking to uh, Tim McNulty, who wrote the thing and worked with a bunch of other authors and photographers and editors to put it together. You're, it's the subtitle is A Lyrical, Natural, and Cultural History of the Olympic Peninsula. Are there particular places that you are, like, your favorite spots to visit? If, you had, if someone was come visiting the Olympic Peninsula for the first time, what were some of the places you'd recommend they visit? Yeah, well, you know, the most popular places uh, uh, in, in, in the park happen to be some of the most fantastic places on the peninsula. Yeah. Of course, Hurricane Ridge, yeah. uh, the temperate rainforest of the whole valley, uh, the wild uh, Olympic coast down at Clay Lock or, or out at La Push, the Quileute Reservation, or up to Nia Bay, Cape Flattery, and uh, the northern end of the, of the coastal strip is um, Shai Shai Beach, perhaps one of the most spectacular places on the coast. My uh, favorite places tend to vary by season. You know, summer is certainly a time for the for the high country and some of the interior, uh, some of the interior mountains, uh, subalpine lakes and meadows and, and uh, broad open ridges. Um, come fall, the, uh, the rainforest valleys are beautiful with the elk in their uh, running season and the maples turning colors and the mushrooms popping out. And, and of course, the salmon after the first rains coming up the rivers. And that's what we're experiencing now. Winter, I tend to like to visit the coast. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the place that uh, is, is less, less, less people there, storms coming in, wild, <laughs> crashing waves, um, you know, what's not to like? Yeah, I, I, I also, I like those natural places. I still sometimes am drawn to sort of the, uh, like the communities, like Port Angeles. Um, I love the Port Angeles waterfront. I had to give, I gave a ta- series of talks at different libraries a couple of years ago. I think I, I started at Forks. And I drove to Port Angeles and stayed there one night and gave a talk at Port Angeles Library and then gave one at uh, Squim oh, the next day. But I was up early in the morning at this at Port Angeles on the harbor a couple mornings. It was just beautiful, just like looking off into the distance, being able to see Vancouver Island and everything. It was just a magical place. And I, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. and I think we, I think uh, some of us over here might take that that for granted a little bit. Yeah, uh, just how stunning it is uh, at, at all times, <laughs> almost anywhere around and, here with the water, the mountains. Uh, you know the distant, distant ranges, Vancouver Island, Cascades. Yeah, and it's just in the there's like, like there's little things like in the on the whatever the main street of ta- through town there. There's the old, um, it's some kind of a, a variety store now, but it used to be the offices of the radio station KONP. 
Um, oh, sure, yeah. And, and the stained glass window is still over the front door. It says, you know, nice, beautiful KONP stained glass of the call letters. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, this is kind of silly, but I love Swain's, that variety store in Port Angeles. Oh, not silly at all. Swain's <laughs> is uh, one of a kind. I mean, I've been shopping there most of my life. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can get like a, you can get an axe handle or you can pick up a copy of like a Monopoly game and some comic books and like some overalls. Yeah. And there was one in Port, Port Townsend for many years. I think they shut down about 10 years ago, but I used to spend a lot of time just wandering around, the, the looking at the, you could find merchandise that you could tell had been there for 10 or 20 or 30 years even sort of vintage unintentionally vintage merchandise um yeah absolutely it's a rare time i i drive over to port angeles without stopping by swains for something yeah so now now did you grow up there how much time how long have you lived on the Olympic peninsula i grew up in new england uh oh wow came okay here, yeah came here as a young man uh just a little over 50 years ago uh 50 51 years next month and what drew you and to the northwest well, you know, I was a I was a literature major, and I got kind of hooked on poetry, and uh, started uh, reading some of the some of the uh, wonderful poets of the West and the Northwest, particularly Theodore Retke and Kenneth Rex Ross, yeah, Gary Snyder, yeah, um, yeah. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see the landscape that they were writing about so beautifully in their poems. And uh, when I came out here, and it was uh, the forests, the mountains, the inland waters, the, the wild ocean coast. Uh, rivers uh it just was overwhelming to me and and i wanted to kind of stick around and see if i could write something about it (laughs) those kinds of regional differences i love that because you know obviously over the last over those intervening 51 years parts of america have become more homogenous and you know the the same see the same stores and the strip malls and the same sort of in culture that's spread by the internet and by tv and you know cable tv back then and then you know kind of everything now how this is maybe this is a tough question to ask, but when you came out here 51 years ago, mm-hmm. how starkly different did the Northwest, in particular, or maybe the the Olympic Peninsula in particular, how starkly different did that feel from where you'd spent the first part of your life in New England? Well, it was it was quite a difference. You know, New England was a was an old, as you know, an old and settled landscape. Uh, you know, I grew up in an old uh, older factory town in Connecticut. Uh, went to school in Boston. Uh, you know, and. Uh, uh, out here was still uh, what I think of as the old Northwest. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was timbering, logging, fishing. It was mills, um, yeah. small towns, one, one, you know, one street light and squim. Squim was pretty much still an <laughs> agricultural town back then. It's, it's not what I'm, talking about the, I'm thinking about the 19th century, but, you know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was not all that long ago. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed a lot, but because of... Uh, all of the efforts that were made, largely citizen-driven uh, efforts um, from way back uh, in the 20s and 30s to protect places like Olympic National Park, uh, to establish you know, um, protected areas in Olympic National Forest, that the core of this place, the heart and soul of it, as I think of it, has not changed. And, and that's the thing that has uh, kept me uh, engaged, enthusiastic, and, and uh, just totally appreciative of uh, of, of this place over the, over the decades that I've lived here. That's right, because the Olympic National Park was designated in, like, 1937 or 38, and, like, FDR came and visited Lake Quinault, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, FDR came in, 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 uh, in 37. 37, uh, okay. Visited Port, yeah, visited Port Angeles and, and uh, went out and spent the night at Lake Crescent where he met with uh, 
some of the local uh, representatives and senators, uh, uh, Forest Service and Park Service people. And by that time, he had been convinced that uh, what we needed was a, a big park here that was going to protect uh, some of the rainforest valleys and and uh, not just a small little uh, cluster of mountains at the core. And and he really, um, I think he, he, he uh, expended some political influence on, on the seeing that when the bill was passed the next year that he signed into law, that it was a pretty big park. That's really cool. Yeah, that, that FDR era and his his sort of dalliance with the Northwest with his daughter and son-in-law living in Seattle and That's all, right. the, all the visits That's right. he made. Like he made that secret wartime visit here, I think, in 1943, where he went to Bremerton to the shipyard and gave a speech and everything. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just it's 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 amazing that that kind of concert, those kinds of conservation efforts to preserve land as a national park in that very um, obviously a, a community that was all about timber extraction and everything to actually protect it. That's that's pretty radical for 1937. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. At a time it was it was going full bore. But, you know, uh, he had a uh, uh, secretary, Harold Hickey, yeah. who was uh, a very committed uh, conservationist at the time. And, uh, you know, I think Roosevelt really took the broad view. He did on a lot of things. Politically, political issues, social issues, yeah. and uh, he was able to do that with conservation as well. Very cool. Now, um, in addition to the event you guys have tomorrow night, Monday night at Town Hall in Seattle, you have a whole little mini tour coming up over the next week or two, I think. I do, yeah. I'm going to be up in um, Bellingham next Friday at Village Books, uh, back over here to Port Townsend on uh, the following Tuesday at the Port Townsend Library. Oh, nice. That's a great location. Yeah. That's terrific. And, I mean, the book is gorgeous. It's called Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain, Washington's Olympic Peninsula. It's got beautiful photographs, all kinds of maps, and it's got lots of separate chapters. Oh, I was going to ask you about the indigenous writers. Was that – I mean, that that's, that's a great – approach. There's, there's lots of opportunities for rewriting or filling in the blanks on some of the history with including indigenous voices. Was that part easy to do? I mean, maybe that's, again, maybe I ask a lot of dumb questions. Was that part easy to do or was it was it tougher than you expected? Well, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was something that we all, all, at the very beginning of the project, we all wanted to make sure that we included in, indigenous writers. And, and uh, I being a writer myself, I thought it would be as easy as just asking someone, hey, can you <laughs> contribute an essay? But, yeah. uh, but it, it turns out uh, that tribal governments had to approve of the project and, and oh, had to wow. look and see what it was we wanted to do. And, uh, and so it, it, uh, it, it, it was, it was uh, yeah, it was a bit of, a bit of involved uh, you know, sustained um, effort to to make that whole piece come together, and I'm I'm really grateful to uh, Helen Chirillo and uh, uh, Kate Rogers, uh, the executive director and uh, managing editor at, at uh, Braided River, who yeah. really made that made that happen. And uh, one of the early uh, Native American writers, uh, Wendy Sampson, a Lower Elwok Falam tribal member, uh, signed on very early, and she was uh, really really a lot of help in bringing this whole pieces, bring, bringing the varying pieces together. And uh, I appreciate I appreciated her involvement. Uh, it's terrific. Extremely. Yeah, so it's, it's the Braided River imprint of Mountaineers Books, which is they've produced so many. I have so many great history books on my shelf going back from Mountaineers, going back into the 60s and 70s, like really like just quintessential texts about Mount Rainier or Mount Baker or right. in, Index yeah, or Monte Cristo. I mean, they've got some really stuff that no one's had to update. But, you know, I mean, stuff they're really well done stuff back from 50, 60 years ago. So, all right. Well, yeah. Tim McNulty, congratulations on Salmon, Cedar, Rock and Rain. And thanks for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. And good luck at the, the event. It's tomorrow night at Town Hall, 
uh, I think it's free, right? Uh, I think there might be a small charge, okay. $5 ticket charge. Oh, that's that's practically free, but there's information. We'll put information on our Facebook page. I know Town Hall has information, and I know Mountaineers has stuff on their Facebook page as well. So thanks again for joining us on the show tonight, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Felix. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, that's Tim McNulty, and the book is a, it is a gorgeous book. It's just in time for the holiday season. I, I, I love that the holidays are just upon us already here. It's late October. It means it's practically practically the end of the year, and this is a this is a gorgeous book. Um, we're going to see if we can get uh, get our next guest, Clay Eels, on the line here. I'm going to try something different that I haven't tried before. I just pick up the phone and I call Clay directly, and then I put him on the radio. Let's see if we can get him this way. Let's just dial him right now. Gonna dial the number. It's kind of like a dialing for dollars movie thing here. Let's see if we can get them. Okay, not gonna give the number out, of course. Let's see if we can get Clay on the Clay on the line here. That way, I don't have to play some uh, audio and kind of mess things up here. Let's see. Hello. Nope, nothing there. Hang on. Try it again here. Dialing Clay Eels, who will be our next guest here on Cascade of History. I like this. This has kind of like a contest feel, like we're calling someone randomly out of the phone book. But that's not the case. It's actually one of our treasured guests. Let's see here. And I'm not able to reach anyone. All right. We're going to go to play our little audio clip here. We're going to play um, our episode of the Chief Seattle biography right here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Then suddenly, word came. White men were in squally country. They were traders in Seattle, remembering the smile of Captain Vancouver, hurried to greet them, eager to barter. What have you, big redskin? Fine beaver skins to trade for white man's poopoo stick. <laughs> Musket, eh? For uh, those few skins? No, no. Go bring more. No! Chief Siak, bring more beaver skins for poopoo stick. Not enough. No. Chief Siak, come again with more skins. Not enough. Bring more, more, more till the pile is as high as the musket. No. Skins of many beaver reach as high as poopoo stick. You give Siak stick now. Well, yes, is enough. Give him the musket, John. Seattle startled home with the musket. His heart was filled with bitterness that his dream of white gods had turned into just plain greedy men with white skins. But he was drawn back again and again to the trading post. He had forgotten his Tamanawis. He quarreled with the traders and raged at his people. At times he seemed to forget his duties as their chief. He was called La Grosse and was known as a troublemaker. Then came a giant pale face in a black robe, Father Demers, a teacher. He spoke to Seattle in his own Indian language, not in Chinook that the traders used. His words brought the dream of peace and friendship alive again and gave it a new meaning. When some of his people sneered, Weakling, Seattle, fly like squaw to white man's god. Seattle answered proudly, Great spirit, live in men's hearts. Make white and red men brothers. Then, as if to strengthen his belief, more white men came. This time they brought their women and their fair-haired children. They came with kindness and smiles. 
Seattle watched them as they built their homes and lived together in his country. Good Bostons. Good white men. My people watch over white children as great spirit watches over Suquamish. Someday, other Bostons come, help Indian, protect my people from enemies in Northland. All right, and that concludes installment three in Their Name Was Courage, uh, the story of Chief Seattle, produced by Gloria Chandler for the Seattle Centennial under the auspices of the Junior League back in 1951. Now, this is Space 101.1 FM, streaming at space101fm.org. You're tuned to Cascade of History, the only live radio program all about Northwest history. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it will be Jay's radio hour, and Jay will be in here live doing his show. He's got choice selections from a massive hall that came from John Tefteller, one of the world's foremost collectors. World music, jazz, and blues all played on original 78s right here in the very warm and uh, very stuffy studios of Space 101.1 FM. All right, uh, coming up in a little bit, we're going to be talking to the editor of the Cascade District, a wonderful online resource. But before we do that, I'm going to invite on my friend Clay Eels. Let's see if I can get press all the right buttons here. Clay, can you hear me? Yep. Uh, very nice. Thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Um, I, uh, I think I reached out to you a couple days ago because I saw some uh, – I know you always – you always post on Thursday for sort of throwback Thursday purposes. You get the kind of the early look at the column in uh, the now and then column in Pacific Magazine. And I saw some photographs from Mount Rainier. So what is mm-hmm. the what, what's the subject of this week's column? Well, it is Mount Rainier. but It, it does um, what we uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about my column partner, Gene Sherard, and I uh-huh. try to do, which is to bring a people angle to a lot of the history that we cover and uh, um, when I was uh, at a at a presentation at Mirabella Retirement Center last spring by Dan Curley about Mount Rainier um, afterward a woman came up to me um, who was a resident of Mirabella and she was holding a box a kind of a beat-up box full of professional photos that turned out to be from 1926, wow. and uh, they are all of Mount Rainier, got more than 40 of them, and many of them showed um, this woman's mother in them, and the mother uh, was a guide at Mount Rainier for one season in 1926. Wow, what a cool, and, cool year to be there. What a cool time of the century to be there. And it was kind of a mystery box because even though she knew a lot about her mom, her mom had never talked to her about this summer that that her mom spent there. And uh, so it's like telling a story through photos. And this is even this is way before she was born. Um, you know, she was her, 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 she was born in 1935, and so this is we're talking nine years before she was born, and so. Um, it's, it was kind of a mystery box, but it also was a very revealing box of photos because the photos are just gorgeous. And so how did you get go from meeting this woman at this event to putting together a column and doing a, a, a then photo, or excuse me, a now photo with her uh, up there at Mountain Rainier National Park? Well, um, I already was kind of predisposed to doing a different column on Mount Rainier 
which ran about a month ago, about a, a, a group of, uh, of uh, golfers who dress in period costume <laughs> and, and use period golf uh, equipment, and they <laughs> had dug up the information that back in 1931, there was a golf course up at Paradise, a nine-hole gar- oh, golf course. Oh, that's right. I saw <laughs> <laughs> and it lasted only a couple of months. And uh, so this is, I don't think anybody really knew about that. And so um, I was already going up to Mount Rainier to do a now photo with those guys. And then when Charlotte came up to me with this box of photos, I thought, well, gee, why not do it all on the same trip and do two columns? And they're, they're very different. One is about a golf course, but this other one is about a, a mother-daughter relationship. And, and, uh, and she, she was thrilled to be able to do this. And so we waited uh, both for the golf column and for this column until August 1st to go up to Mount Rainier when the mountain looked a little more, you know, the snow pattern on the mountain looked a little more like, they, like it did in 1926. Ah, uh, I gotcha. Okay. And, and so to get a better match. And so we did it. And had a glorious day up there. I couldn't. I can't imagine the weather having been better up there, and the the mountain just pops right out, and it and it just makes for a, a something that we all know. Anybody who lives here for any length of time, I mean, the, the mountain is always there. Yeah. You know, even if we can't see it, we know it's always mm. there, and, it, and it's so it's a it's a, it's a presence in our lives, and it's a very inspiring one. And that's what this, I don't know whether it's serendipity or opportunism or or what it is, but I love that. That's the kind of, my favorite part about work like this, where you meet Mm -hmm. somebody who has some story to tell that maybe part Mm -hmm. of it's been told before, or maybe it hasn't, but then you just, you spend time with them and it's, you get this very personal connection with the person that, you know, they share their photos with you. You hear about all about their, their mother or whatever. In this case, it's, it's this woman, Charlotte, how does she pronounce her last name? Bashu. Bashu. So it's Charlotte Bashu's mother, and you get to see these photos and everything. And then it's like it's, and you know, it's it's not like you guys are friends, but there's this there's this connection that happens when you hear someone's history and tell that person's story, that not not everyone gets to make so make those kinds of connections with people. I think people who work in the history world know what I'm talking about. Whether you work in a museum and you're taking in artifacts as the registrar or something, or whether you're you know doing the kind of work that you and I do, kind of media stuff around history, you just get these sort of really bizarre, intense, personal glimpses and kind of short-term sometimes personal connections with people about these really cool stories. I think that's, what a cool job you have, Clay. Well, you know, um, uh, Steve Sade is the local documentary filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, we, we did a column on his, his uh, documentary on James J. Hill last uh, spring, and, and, and he says, now I know what you and Gene do. He says, remember the most favorite part of grade school? That was when you got to go on a field trip, and you guys get to go on a field trip every week. <laughs> but this, this this wasn't just a field trip, though. I mean, imagine going up to Mount Rainier and doing a couple of photo shoots and coming back down. That's a twelve-hour day, and yeah. Charlotte and I really got to know each other, and we really clicked. And and uh, she was just exuberant afterwards. She was looking forward to the column. And she told me several times by phone and by email, she said, I can't wait to get back together again. I mean, we, we sort of had this instant friendship. And yeah. it was, you know, that's, that's part of what happens when you, when you try to bring people into a column like this. I mean, it's not just about 
generating human interest, but it's about relationship. Everything's about relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. The good, the good, the good stories, there's always a relationship at the core of any good story, whether, you know, good journalists strike and they're not, and not, not in an insincere way. It's just that the time constraints are different and you're not, you know, it's not like someone you meet at school or someone you, you know, you like you play golf with or whatever. It's just, it's a different, I don't think, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe all kinds of journalism are like that, but the history related journalism in particular offer these really unique kind of field trip opportunities like this. And these, these opportunities for just really deep connections with people. And then the, the, the you know the um, how gratifying it is when you tell that person's story and then they they see it being told or hear it being told and they feel like they've been seen and heard and their story's been shared and so you but you got some really sort of bittersweet sad news I think it was yesterday right well on Friday I heard that Charlotte was in the hospital um, and I did not know about this but I kind of suspected something was up because as you noted on Thursdays uh, our, our those are the days when the column is posted online. And Charlotte was really pretty responsive to me by email, even at age 88. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I had sent her the links to the posts, and I didn't get a response back. But on Friday, I heard from somebody else at Mirabella that she'd been hospitalized. And then yesterday morning, I heard that late Friday night, she had died. Oh, and uh, it's... Uh, I mean, this is what partly what you risk when you do a column in a pre-printed magazine where you have to submit it five weeks in advance. Yeah. Occasionally, this kind of thing will happen. But um, she was looking forward to this coming out. Um, and I learned yesterday from her friend at Mirabella, who had visited her several times in the hospital, that, that when the column was posted on Thursday and she was really going downhill... Somebody somehow got a laptop to her in the hospital room, and she looked at the column and the the photos online, and she got a big smile on her face. Wow! Oh, I'm and I'm then, really I'm glad to hear that part. Wow! That's and then uh, that's, yeah, this wow. morning, um, I learned that Charlotte uh, <laughs> she had told her friends that. She didn't want a memorial service. Whenever it was that she died, she didn't want a memorial service. She was insistent about that. But that this is sort of a serendipitous tribute to her. Absolutely. And what what anybody as a journalist would understand is I learned this yesterday, and the magazine's pre-printed, and so you can't really do anything about it there. But I called my editors and said, could we please get a a little update? Uh, And the appropriate place for it is on page A2 where the corrections go and they put a little update there to note that Charlotte had died Friday night. Um, wow. And so it's it's kind of a full circle thing. Um, and as you said earlier about the relationships and doing history reporting, you know, it's about the relationships you develop with the sources, but think about how getting a, a taking the approach of, of telling people's story to tell the history of a region. Yeah. That allows the readers or the listeners to, to identify with those people. And they can say, well, I've been there too, or this is what it would be like if I were there too, or what would I do if I were there too? And that's the whole, um, the, the beauty of doing a people-oriented approach to journalism is that everybody can identify 
Yeah, that universality is is really key. Um, and just, I'm always amazed at how nice people are. <laughs> um, I went up, there was a guy, a guy reached out to me. This is, God, this is maybe 10 years ago now. Uh, a guy named Ken Stouffer. He was 90, I think, when I first talked to him. He had uh, joined the Army in 1940 um, as a Canadian um, from Vancouver Island because, you know, Canada was at war in 1939, like two years before the U.S. was. And he, in those days, people in Victoria listened a lot to Cairo Radio, the station I worked for during the week, my day job station. You know, our, our AM signal was really strong um, in the 40s, and it was like a really popular morning show. This guy, anyway, Cairo listeners collected candy and stuff for him to take to an orphanage in London on his way overseas. And anyway, he'd saved all this stuff. He'd saved a recording. He saved this big cardboard cutout that they used when they were collecting donations. But um, I took the ferry up there, that uh, you know, the uh, Victoria Clipper, and my daughter and I went and took a cab to his house. I had all this recording gear with me. He, he and his wife, they had us. They fed us soup. We hung out with them in their living room. We spent the afternoon with these people we'd never met before, and it was just like mm-hmm. we just hit it off because he was he was hilarious. He was a really brilliant, funny guy, but it was just like there was this kind of sense that he knew we were going to tell his a big part of his story that he want that he was happy that being told. And it was just sort of this, just this sort of mutual appreciation society kind of thing. Anyway, and it's just, I, I don't know of any other work that lets, uh, lets me get so close to people over and over again, you know, about different topics and stuff and kind of hear these sort of incredible, as you said, sort of glimpses into humanity that bring part of the history along with it too. So I, I, I think the timing is, it reminds me a little bit of Charles Schultz, um, how he passed away as his final Peanuts Sunday strip was being published on that weekend. I don't know, maybe 25 years ago now. I can't remember the exact date, but I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. The, the timing is just like, it couldn't be more perfect in some ways. It's really, I mean, it's sad. Mm-hmm. Obviously she's passed away, but mm-hmm. what a nice tribute to her and the fact she saved those photos and a tribute to the relationship with her mother and everything that you were able to, to bring that to readers as she's, you know, as she's moving on. It's pretty incredible. I agree. I, I, it does bring a smile to my face, even in the face of death, the sadness of death. And, uh, um, you know, again, to go back to what triggered this was this old box of professional photos of Mount Rainier. Um, people got a glimpse of several of those photos in this morning's Times. But if any among your listeners wants to see all 42 of the photos, they can go to our blog, Gene and I maintain a separate blog where we post the column every week, and then we post lots of what we call web extras. And yeah. I've got uh, not only all of the photos <clears throat> on there, uh, but uh, a video interview of Charlotte and uh, other news clips. And, and it's a very easy place to go because it's it's the name of our column founder. It's pauldorpat.com. Excellent. <laughs> a, name, a household name, if ever there was one around Northwest history. Um, can you give us a sneak preview of what next week's column is, by any chance? Well, um, the, the Times has played around with the schedule a little okay, bit. Okay. And, <laughs> um, so um, the next column, um, just hang on just a half sec here. I, I'm always, I'm <laughs> I didn't always mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. I'm, but I'm always juggling you know when is the proof coming when is the deadline to submit yeah. and then when what's coming up um, and, and, and I, I just like one, to pump people for inside information that's what all I'm trying to do you know I'm trying to like the, you one, know, the one that's following week is about uh, ghosts in Georgetown you know Georgetown markets itself in the history community yes uh, and all of its history is related to 
what they call their haunted history tour. That's right. And Gene Sherrard <laughs> next week is going to show us around the Georgetown steam plant where Perfect. a couple of, of researchers have dug up information about a potter's field there. And, oh, wow. uh, you know, they've been doing their haunted history tour for, for uh, 20 years. This wow. is the 20th anniversary year. Then the week after that, we've got, uh, it's, it's the wine edition, and we're focusing on Walla Walla, a, a, <laughs> a winery there that goes back 100 years. And the, the building that they're in goes back 100 years. And, nice. Uh, and it all follows from there. We've got, uh, we're, we're plotted out through the end of the year. That's great. And now I've got to move on to my next guest here in a minute, but I want to take just a second to talk about the last time I saw you in person was at that historic Seattle event at Washington Hall. You won the That's award. Right. That was a terrific award. It was great. to. I was thrilled to be the, be the person presenting or helping present all the awards and introducing you and everything. You got such a big roar of applause. There were so many people who really liked you at that event, Clay. I was jealous. <laughs> Everybody was like, you're you know, Mr. <laughs> Mr. History, Mr. West Seattle History, Mr. Admiral Theater, all these different nicknames, and everyone was just like, I mean, you were you were clearly the most popular guy there that night. So congratulations on a great award, and congratulations on just having being so well-respected in your community. Well, thank you. Somehow I kind of stumbled into getting into preservation and heritage <laughs> uh, at a very young age, and so what happens is you know, time passes and and, and uh, you you become the only one standing from some <laughs> efforts out there. Well, but, I think it's uh, a little more to it than that. But anyway, congratulations anyway, on that. And uh, I'm I'm it's a bittersweet story the way you talk about um, Miss Miss Bashu, but yeah. I think you did a fabulous job telling her story and the fact she lived long enough to see it online and it's 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 anyway that's a very uh-huh. memorable one. I'll, I'm 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 really grateful to you for sharing that story with us on Cascade of History. Well, thanks you. Thanks for letting me do that, and you you do a great job too. I mean, my theme of the speech that I gave at the historic Seattle was that it takes a village. They were it, nobody does this work alone. It's and, true. Uh, yep. You're certainly part of the village, Felix. Your your show and uh, your work on Cairo and just over the decades. I mean, you've got a track record a mile long. I my hats off to you. All right, Clay. Nice talking to you. And have a good evening. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, that was Clay Eels joining us on the Space 101.1 FM Newsline. Actually, that's not really the name for it. Um, that was weird when I tried to call Clay, and it felt like I was dialing a contest there. I think I'm going to try to avoid that in the future. Usually what I do, as in between guests, we only have one phone line, so I can't have somebody waiting on hold. So right now, um, our third guest, Nick uh, Negalescu of the Cascade District, should be dialing in any moment now. Um, but normally what I do, I have a piece of audio or some kind of two-minute clip or something to play in between as kind of a little bit of a, um, I can turn my microphone down and I can work on the back side here because I'm by myself here. I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to pick up the phone. Is that you, Nick? Oh, hang on a second. Whoop, are you there, Nick? Are you there? Oh, hello? Oh, hang on. I'm going to put you on the air, okay? Stand by, Okay. <laughs> Let's see. I almost hung up on him there. This is kind of a little behind-the-scenes look into the uh, the back end of uh, Cascade of History. All right, Nick, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Now, I think, are you in the ferry line right now? Uh, yes, I am in the Anacorius ferry line. Okay. Uh, and yeah, uh, but, what's, uh, what's the line look like? you have a good chance of getting on the boat tonight? Absolutely. You know, um, I uh, I tell the, the ferry attendant uh, the, the, at the booth, 
I didn't have a reservation this evening, and I said, you know, I'm living dangerously. No reservation. Okay. Uh, but we'll be able to get on just fine tonight. Yeah. It's nice because our first guest was on the Olympic Peninsula. Our guest just a moment ago was over in West Seattle, and now here you are up in Anna Course. I love that we can jump around the region on this show. And now I've been following the Cascade District on Facebook for a couple of years. I've looked at the website many times. Um, for someone, first of all, your Nick, pronounce your last name for me. I think you do a much better yeah. job than I do. Nick Negalescu. Nick Negalescu. Okay, good. And you're the you're the digital editor of the Cascade District. And so, for someone who's never seen it or heard of it, what is the Cascade District? Yeah. No. I, I thank you for the opportunity here to explain a little bit about it. Uh, so, the Cascade District is uh, is basically um, it's an online initiative to make uh, you know the unique regional history of the Pacific Northwest Coast of North America discoverable and accessible in the digital age. And um, the goal really started out with building a website around um, place names yeah and uh place names and how places get their names is is always an interesting way to start looking at history and so what i did was um my 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 daytime profession i'm a computer science um engineer and uh i i have a passion for history as well and i figured well you know i put the two together so in 2016 um i started a BizSpark project uh which was you know microsoft will you know, give you some free cloud services if you, you know, try to, you know, start start this, you know, thing going on. And I said, well, you know, this is a great opportunity to try to build a website around historical place names mm-hmm. and how they got their names. And oftentimes, I would find myself reading a historical book, and I would just be like, okay, where is this place? This <laughs> name does not sound familiar. It's a historical name, you know. And I was, I was, I was coming across this issue so many times. I said, you know, I'll, I'll, let me see if I can solve this problem myself. Okay. And I mean, you're preaching to the choir because I love place names. That was one of the first books I ever got as a child was that Washington Place Names by James Phillips. My sister gave it to me for my birthday when I was like nine or 10. And I still have the same copy of it and I have it's all, you know, it's marked up and thumbed here and there. And I just, and there's so many great resources. There's some good online resources, but most of the good stuff that I use are in the hard, you know, like the old uh, printed book, whether it's Meanies, Place Names of Washington or Walbrin's, uh, British Columbia Place Names and stuff. So... Um, so, what was your first step? How do the how do, what's what's the web, what's there? If you go to the if you go online now, what do people find? How do they interface with these to find information about places? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. Yeah. So the, the website is accessible at cascadedistrict.com. Okay. Um, and uh, the, the actual domain has a, a, a history in itself. Um, but uh, <laughs> what, what do you mean? Wait, what do you mean by that? <laughs> uh, well, so um, that used to be the domain for the Boy Scouts of America of Seattle, uh, oh. and I think they didn't renew it, or uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> oh, no. I got a hold of it. Did they try to take it back? <laughs> uh, I was never contacted, but um, I'm doing something good with it. Okay. Scouts honor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. Um, so on the website, basically, there's a search. Uh, there's a search box there, and right now in the search box area, you can type in sort of any place name within the Pacific Northwest, whether it's in British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, or Idaho. Okay. And it's a unified database of all of the different place names from all of those different areas, and it's harmonized with the Canadian side uh, in terms of you know getting cities with you know they've got different names, they've got district municipalities, they've got you know a bunch of different uh, names for cities that and so everything was harmonized and basically the way that you can you can search for a place name or you can go to the places and you can drill down by the political divisions you can go into British Columbia and then British Columbia is divided by 
regional districts, right? Where yeah. they're, they're similar to our counties in okay. the United States. And so you can drill down that way, you know, if you're interested in, you know, what's the name of, why is this place in, you know, Franklin County called this? Um, you know, Edward Meany's book now, part of the reason why I'm able to publish this stuff online is because Edward Meany's book uh, from 1923 is currently in the public domain. Yeah. Right? So yeah. a lot of this information is, is available to, you know, for people that are, you know, digitally minded. You, you can recreate, um, you know, new things with, with some of this data. So that's really the effort here is to be able to um, create a website that's really available and accessible uh, that provides, you know, place names, not only current place names, but historical place names. So the current project that I'm working on right now is uh, the database that I have out there for the place names for Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. That's from 2016. Um, the federal government went through with all the different states and requested updated place names for derogatory names. Um, and so um, I've, I'm in the process right now of updating the database and encountering the names that have been changed as a result of that effort. And uh, I'm going to create a blog post about it. And uh, when, when I'm done with it, maybe there'll be an opportunity to come back on the show and, and just talk about maybe the, the total number of place names that have been updated as a result of derogatory place name yeah. um, effort, right, within the within the broader region of the Pacific Northwest. Um, so does your database then um, have, like, have the data, like the like all the text from Meany? If I went and typed in, I don't know, King County, I would get whatever Meany wrote about King County in there? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Most of most of Meany stuff is in there for 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 the counties within uh, Washington State, uh -huh. and most of the place names of like the city, okay, uh, or the location. Um, and then the the database does contain also geographic features, so you know reefs, rivers, lakes, and things like that. Um, and there's definitely um, um, there's a lot of work to be done. I would say that there's about 143,000 place names in the database. Wow. across the, 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 the four different political regions. And there's 173,000 place names. So some of those names have had multiple names over the course of the year, right? Huh. Um, over the over the course of the years. So, um, yeah, uh, that's really the effort. And part of this project, too, is, is geared around, you know, how can we apply technology to the study of history and i think there are some opportunities in the in the short term um that i think uh i'm pursuing with the cascade district so one of them is, is specifically the problem that historical societies have where they've got quite a bit of things on their hands so they've got collections they receive on a periodic basis they also have large photographic libraries they're available and a lot of them are in the process of digitizing them mm -hmm. the process of digitizing Photographs in historical societies really requires that you add metadata to the photos as you're working through them, right? So that yeah. as somebody looks at them in the future, there's context around them. So one of the goals of the Cascade District is to see if there's an opportunity with historical societies to help them. They're, they're already digitizing their work, right? But they don't know what for. One of the opportunities with these large digital libraries would be to get them onto some sort of platform where you can apply facial recognition across historical photographs to begin to create new connections that may have been lost hmm. or facial recognition connections across 
uh, photographic database libraries uh, across multiple historical societies. So if, if multiple historical societies get together and you know, post up their photos and apply facial recognition technology to their photos and the historical photos, right, there, you know, there, there is this new opportunity now where, um, you know, the photo that Mason County has, uh, there might be another photograph with a person, you know, in Douglas County. Interesting. And all of a sudden, you've got, you know, this person in two different places and a new connection, a new historical connection has been made, uh, you know, where one may have been lost in the past. Yeah, uh, I, that's that's cool because, you know, there's been this big push. I guess it goes back a few decades now, this notion of digital humanities and and in like it's a very crude way, I'll use that like for some of these keyword searches on whether it's newspapers.com or some of the um, newspaper databases you can get through the Seattle Public Library, and that's terrific. I was involved in a photo, uh, an online photo project about twenty, god, twenty-two years ago, I think now. Called um, the final product was called Crossing Organizational Boundaries. It was founded by the IMLS, the Institute Museum Library Sciences, and this is when I worked at Mohai. And Mohai mm-hmm. was a lead agency. We partnered with the UW. And we had about 10 smaller historical groups that also partnered with us. And the idea was to digitize X number of photographs. But then also using, which was, it was a platform called Content, uh, Content DM, uh-huh. which is still around now. I, got, I think it got bought out by OCLC or one of those big library groups. Yeah, yeah. And it was developed here at the UW, developed by the, the father of like an old friend of mine. And that, he ended up being sort of the, the guy we went to for that project. And it was this amazing project. It got three or $400,000 which was one of the biggest projects we'd been funded at that point at Mohai. And it, it did exactly what we hoped it would. It let this created a single database. You could, you could type a search term in one box and look at, you could search all 12 collections for images of, you know, the gold rush or the great Seattle fire or whatever. And it was, it was pretty cool. Um, but again, that's, that's, that's a couple, couple decades ago now. I know things have moved much, much further along in terms of uh, just the end user's comfort with looking for digital photos and searching digital databases and stuff. It's all very much, not necessarily second nature, and I think there's a lot of, as you said, there are a lot of historical societies that don't necessarily have the um, have the horsepower or have the the guidance in order to uh, do these kinds of big projects like that. But I would like to have you back on. I'm running out of time, unfortunately. We're getting close to the top of the hour here. But um, so, where can people go if they want to look at Cascade District? Yeah, so they can go to uh, www.cascadedistrict.com. Okay, and, and no uh, Boy Scouts allowed. <laughs> yeah, it'll pull up on your on your mobile phone as well, so it's very okay. mobile friendly. All right. Well, Nick Negalescu, um, thanks for joining us from the Ferry Line at Anacortes, and I hope we can uh, have you again on the show sometime. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Have, have a good night. All right, well, we're just about out of time here on our big weekly live broadcast of Cascade of History. Next week, we're going to do a we're going to air a special. It's a um, it's about a 10-year-old radio drama I produced for AM 1090 when it was a sports talk station back in 2013. It's called Sports Talk Panic. Don't tune in and think that the world is ending. It's a tribute to the War of the Worlds. It was done for the 70th anniversary, I think, or oh, 75th anniversary. So we'll be marking the 85th anniversary here in the 8 o'clock hour next week. So that'll just be a special broadcast. Um, go to the Facebook page. In the meantime, there's information about the event with Tim McNulty and the other authors of the book that we talked about which is called Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain. That event's tomorrow night at Town Hall in Seattle. And do check out the Clay Eels column in Now and Then in today's uh, Sunday Seattle Times and look at uh, photographs of Charlotte Dean Bashu and her mom and uh, just a terrific story that Clay shared with us. I'm Felix Spinell for Cascade of History. We're here every week on Space 101.1 FM. Jay's Radio Hour is coming up next. And uh, I will see you next week.
Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.